Hey, hello, welcome. How are we doing, everybody? We are back. Um, sponsors that have brought us to you today. Go Deep Flotation Therapy. Now, I managed to get myself over to see Kieran at Go Deep uh, just last week and got my float on 90 minutes and, oh, it was a long time coming. It was lovely. It was an evening one. I think I floated at 8 o'clock and it was just bliss. He gave me some of the CBD oil, 1,000 <clears throat> milligram bottle. Um, so a few drops of that. Yeah, and life's been great. Um, good to see Kieran. Good to know that he's uh, enjoyed as best he can some of this time with the family, with his little boy. Um, it was really, really nice to reconnect, albeit at a distance. But the float is on and it was amazing. Felt great physically, just drifted away into the upside down and disappeared into the space of one's self. It was wonderful. So you can do the same. Um, 10% off with a code word CHEW. Search Go Deep Flotation online. Hit them up. Give them that code and you will get 10% off a float. You get to meet Kieran and Annie. Lovely people. Um, the CBD oil is uh, is up for grabs there as well now um, I don't know a lot about the different oils I've only just started using it this week I had um, a situation where I hurt my back training, <clears throat> pulled a muscle in kind of the bottom of my back top of my arse I guess and um, I'd luckily planned to get into the cryo and I'd just done a float um, and I was getting, had the cryo planned and uh, I was using the, the the CBD drops from Go Deep. So that's been really nice and I feel like definite um, the edge removed from the, just the, because when you hurt your back and stuff, it's not just that you hurt your back, it's like, the, it's a psychological dent because you can't move properly and you you can't get your head around the fact how immobilised you are, or I can't anyway. I find that as, as restrictive as the actual movement. So yeah, the CBD was lovely, kind of took the edge off of all of that and uh, I'm impressed with it. So far, so good. So big shout to Go Deep, GoDeepFlotationTherapy.com. Cryo, LincolnCryoLab.co.uk. They've been refurbing. I got my finger out of my arse, managed to line it up with Matt and I got over there just this weekend, uh, time of recording Sunday before you hear this to today, Monday or thereafter. Um, Saturday I went and, and caught up with Matthew and I'd seen him earlier in the week because the kids went back to the to the uh, MMA club to the <clears throat> dojo at Function First so I caught up with Matt and it was great to see the kids all in the room again at distance but in the room doing their training moving their bodies smiling at one another that was a really lift uplifting thing to see this week the kids loved it it was great to see Matt back doing what he does best and inspiring people Um and the refurb, yeah, they've 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 put the cryo and the float um, segregated off now from the rest of the gym, so it's an isolated experience, separate entrance. It's just a, it's a, it's its own domain, I guess. And uh, the the guys have got a really wide range of CBD products now, and uh, lots of people have been doing the CBD and then going on the cryo and just feeling amazing. Um, and I'm really really pleased to see Matt. Um, yeah, buzzing with what's happening there with the cryo and the floating. You know, so many people have been in the cryo um, and the CBD products as well. I mean, drinks and chocolate and um, muscle balms and, 
yeah, seeing the parents leaving with products and learning about CBD and bringing in cryo to their lives and stuff. It's been great. I mean, uh, um, it's an inspiring setup down there. So you can you can get in the cryo three minutes. I and I'll tell you what, this time was just like because I'd hurt my back and I I was literally I limped in there. It was great. It was just being blasted with that. And I notice it in the cold shower, you know, I get the cold shower on, on my back. It does noticeably and quickly feel better and just more fluid. But um, the cryo is different gravy and I slept fantastic again. Just, yeah, a real lift. So they are, they're bashing out sessions now, um, busier and busier all the time. But with a code word CHEW, you can get 10% off at lincolncryolab.co.uk. So go and see the guys down there. Thank you. Okay, thank you to Anchor for having us. Um, and I'd like to say welcome. I'm just, I've just looked um, at the American contingent and people have joined us from Ohio and Maryland and Indiana, Oregon, uh, California's jumping up, Washington, Virginia, um, New York. So thank you. Welcome. It's a privilege to have you. Um, yeah, really, really nice to know we've got you guys in America listening because so many of the podcasts that I love um, that have helped square some of the noise in my head um, and some of the people that I really I really do um, look forward to hearing the, the American show. So yeah, it really feels nice to think that we might be able to give some of that back and some of you guys are, are enjoying us and joining us and part of the family at Chew the Chat. So that's awesome. And everybody else as well in the other countries and obviously the UK, um, noticing we're getting more messages all the time now people sort of reaching out and i think we had four people reach out to to come on the podcast um just this week which was really really interesting um because we, we you know we always get lovely feedback as i report back to you guys but um yeah some of the messages you can just you can feel that it's just turning up a notch maybe we've been around just long enough for the, where trust starts to build now but it's been lovely and we had a we've been approached i mean i don't want to spoil anything because nothing's set in stone but we've got a world champion uh ex-world champion kickboxer and um, british title level uh boxer who's going to come and see us we've got um an instagram i guess you call them what are they these days uh are they, I forget the term they use, Instagram, I don't like the term as well, which is maybe why I've fired it out of my head. The the uh, the people with the big Instagram pages that are sharing kind of ideas and memes and, and uh, information-based influencers, Instagram influencer page, um, a spirituality page kind of vibe, um, yeah, they, they've, they've reached out, which is nice. It, um, spiritual awakening worldwide that's the page um yeah they've reached out so that's awesome we're gonna have a, a really cool conversation about what those guys are doing um yeah we've got a rap artist from down in, in brighton who's super talented and you know so yeah it's been awesome um so thank you to everybody um it, it's great and we also yeah i guess in line with the, with the sponsors with the cbd products we got um we are cbd are sending us a a package of all sorts of different edibles and jellies and the whole CBD range. So um, we've got that coming being sent. So I, no doubt I'll be CBD'd up to the nines through me paws and me eating it and vaping it and all sorts. So, 
you'll probably be hearing a lot about that as well in the coming weeks. So thank you to those guys. Um, yeah, all good. All good. Um, last last episode, Steph Smalley. Again, local, local lad. Um, and I guess a lot of local people listening and watching. And we've had lovely messages yet again. And people just cracking up. We've got messages, I think, when the audio dropped on Monday... Um, I had messages from people as early as like half seven in the morning who've listened listened to it while they're getting ready to go to work or, or, or do this, um, you know, the day's deeds uh, and just said falling about laughing in the bedroom, getting dressed. And yeah, we had one or two messages like that. Um, and yeah, it's great fun. Always wonderful to sit down with my friends and catch up and put it down on a, you know, on a memory stick that we can keep for the future and remember this you know, a couple of hours of just catching up and having fun. Um, yeah, Steph always creases me. You know, he's got that that, that banal, dry, sort of whittling uh, humour, which I love. Um, so that was wonderful. And we are, as I said on the podcast, scheduled to meet up in a room with the other boys from Live Riot and crash some noise and see what happens. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. So thank you to everybody for those kind of messages. Pod Bible magazine, again extended thanks we're in the magazine issue 10 i'm seeing great feedback um from people chatting about that on the on the uh on the pod bible pages and yeah it's been lovely seeing that growing and we are grateful as ever for being in there so check out podbiblemag.com if you haven't go and find out about podcasts what's going on who's doing what with who and what's coming up it's a great resource uh, and then today's episode we are literally joined by um dance music stalwart nominate uh once upon a time he was outrage and before that he was rage um started in the jungle scene and as jungle kind of became branched out into dmb and later dubstep and jtec he's been a pioneer toured the world um yeah, paid his bills through his music, found the tears, found the highs, found the lows, uh, struggled with being around the world touring and the party lifestyle. And as we dig in in the podcast, you know, a history, um, drinkers, alcoholics, parents in the family and a really fascinating and quite a deep take on, on environment and childhood as we often get to in these podcasts with you, the chat, you know, um, yeah, the fascination with what happens to us when we're young um, and what kind of impact that has on how we develop and what we feel and how we measure the world as we grow up. So fascinating. The drive and the creative um, output of, of nominee um, Andy is uh, phenomenal and he's taken it into education, which I thought was fascinating. So you're going to learn a lot about about uh, education and base, which is nominee's um education setup which is i guess set up to support university and college level learning um and we talk in in depth about the education system and how we might be able to improve it and inspire kids and and so on so yeah we're going to go in with nominee and i'm going to play obviously one of nominee's tracks and this is a track that i love it's called blind man it's got a little sampled lyric in it and as you'll find out in a podcast we talk about buddhism we talk about growing up we talk about you know getting out of the way, getting your blinkers off when you're a young, wild young man and squarely looking at yourself and trying to pull yourself together and fix up. So, um, yeah, Blind Man by Nominee. You'll like this, I think. 
it fits this podcast wonderfully. So without further ado, this is episode number 24 of the Tudor Chat podcast with Nominee, a.k.a. Outrage. You cannot see of all things to live in darkness must be the worst. Fear is the only darkness. You think I cannot see. What do you hear? I hear the water. I hear the birds. Do you hear your own heartbeat? No, 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 no. Old man, how is it that you hear these things? Young man, how is it that you do not do not?
all things. To live in darkness must be the worst. Fear is the only darkness. You think I cannot see. What do you hear? I hear the water. I hear the birds. Do you hear your own heartbeat? Young man, how is it that you do not do not is the people, the punters wearing the masks and the staff aren't. It's just, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> so fluffy and inconsistent that mm. I just don't see an end until at least next year, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And how, and so what about things for you then? How's it affecting you, like, work-wise and stuff? Is most of your stuff online now with education and base and stuff? or? Yeah, so we're online primarily. We do enjoy the face-to-face stuff. We go around to schools, colleges, universities and do like masterclasses and workshops and stuff. And that's how we started off as an event down Brick Lane before we went online. So we do love that side of it, but obviously that's took a hit. But primarily we're online education, so it's actually been okay. Um, we work, Pre-COVID, we were working closely with education anyway, and obviously now they need extra support for their blended learning and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. um, so the the need and the desire for it's there, but the budget's not. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, cause nobody knows where to spend their money because they don't know what the next academic year is going to hold. And actually a lot of people are in fear of their jobs right now. So mm-hmm. but actually we've been giving um, free access to students and teachers for about a year now anyway. So we have, you know, that's been something we wanted to do before the whole COVID thing. So we've built up some nice relationships and, and been supporting online education for a good year or so now anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just developing and, and growing those relationships to try and support in whatever the new normal might look like moving forward. The new normal, yeah. God, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, you can hear everything, see everything. You good, your end, yeah? Good, yep. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll welcome you to Tudor Chat then. Um, Andrew Ferguson, Andy. Once upon a time, rage, outrage, now nominee. Um, a, I guess you're a stalwart at this point of the uh, the dance music industry, the scene. Um, 
yeah, I was, I'm interested. Your name is your friends um, with the Wincott brothers, who I'm good friends with. Your name has been popping up in my sphere for many, many years. So it's yeah. good to meet you. Good to good to say hello. And I'm looking in. I'm looking forward to sort of digging into your your story because uh, I know it's an interesting one and a colourful one. Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, and and Danny, Tommy, and Ollie have. Uh, been there since the beginning of that journey definitely mm -hmm. they were the first guys that i um got in the studio with they engineered my well tommy and ollie no danny and ollie engineered my first track back when i was uh 15 16 i'm 40 now so yeah wow god yeah, yeah. that's flown then so how did it all get started for you i know that you went into you, you did pirate stuff you you um you got into pirate radio and stuff like that so how did it all begin what was going on when you were a kid was it musical when you were a kid was it in the house how did it all start? Parents had rubbish taste. I'll say rubbish. <laughs> I didn't have those cool parents that, you know, were listening to all Pink Floyd and, and all Motown and stuff like that. It was more like Cliff Richard and Elvis and stuff like that, which, you know, yeah, legends yeah. in a <laughs> but, Yeah, of course. But um, no, not, not a musical family, no musical training. I just, I was a part of that first wave of, well, when, obviously, 89 when rave music hit the UK, I was still at school, but it very much became a fashion. So I wasn't raving at that point. I was probably in my early, well, 12, 13 maybe, but we were certainly listening to the tape packs and all the rave kind of um, part of that movement and collecting the flyers. And, you know, um, I think I remember being at school and we'd blag the drama teacher to borrow the uh, cassette player. We needed it as a part of our play, but actually we were listening to like Dreamscape 2 tapes. <laughs> and that was middle school, you know? So that was like 10, 11 actually. Wow. Eight. And then just progressed into the natural first wave of everybody, everybody wanting to be a DJ kind of more end of jungle techno, beginning of jungle, I would say, um, was when I started to take an interest in actually wanting to be a DJ saving my dinner money to buy records because I was come from a, you know, bit of a poor background, council, you know, typical situation, council estate, um, not much money. So I was saving my dinner money so I can go buy one piece of vinyl on a Saturday morning. Mm. Um, managed to get myself some decks for Christmas, which were two Goodman's separate vinyl players and a realistic mixer from Tandy, thinking <laughs> I was a thing. I didn't know about beat matching. I was like great i've got two decks and a, and a mixer and i've got some vinyl i'm a dj now and then i'd go into the record shop and see the dj kind of pulling the platter pushing it and tweaking this thing on the side I was like, what's he doing there because up until that point i was just fading <laughs> musical intros in and just clanging beats or trying to find a point in the record that i could cross over without it sounding like a train wreck mm -hmm. and then i cottoned on to the fact that um there's a bit more to dj and then just a couple of separates and, uh, and some vinyl and then yeah, just took it more and more seriously. We put on local jungle drum and bass parties in pub function rooms. We did. We had a thing at Bed in Bedford called Lazy Sunday, which was a once a year kind of festival by the river where they'd have a drum and bass dedicated stage, with like a twenty five k rig. Um, a lot of my school friends kind of fizzled out in the late teens, kind of left school, got into other types of music, and I stuck with it. When I was like, we had a pirate radio station at the end of our upper school years, um, which only went kind of a radius of about 
a mile. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we'd have this aerial that was about 20 foot high and I'd be hanging out my mate's mum's bedroom window putting this, I'd be the mug that always put this aerial up because I was that passionate about getting that mile out around town. Mm. And um, we, we did that for a couple of years and I cottoned on to the fact that if you phoned up record labels and told them that you played on a radio station, they'd send you promos which was great because I was getting all the white labels and we had this little kind of inner station battle of who could go and who could get the freshest promos and you'd go down to Lucky Spin or Black Market. And, but I, I actually ended up getting them delivered to my doorstep because on every record label there was a phone number and I was phoning it. It's a DJ promo. It'd be like DJ Hype's home address or Groove Riders' home, uh, sorry, uh, home phone number or whatever. There'd always be a house number or Bookham's house phone number and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I'd phone them up and say that I was on this radio station and I'd get sent promos. And then from that, I kind of thought I had an idea to kind of set up a mail order service. So I was obviously building up these relationships with record labels. I'd be on the phone to Chemistry from Metalheads, you know, RIP. And she'd be like just talking to me about stuff and just having random chit chats and build up this relationship. And I thought, well, if I put this service together that does all this shipping out on behalf of the labels it's going to take that pain away from them having to do it and having to screen all the djs and make sure they're active and playing and stuff so i had a little office in bedford town and i was shipping out vinyl promos on behalf of renegade hardware ed russian opticals label bad company v recordings um ended up just smoking weed in the office and falling asleep every afternoon but it was a nice <laughs> little didn't make any money um you know i didn't you know, it's just being a silly teenager at the time. Um, but it was a nice idea and I got to know a few record labels and got, got decent gigs off the back of it. I met people in uh, Germany. I was going to play in Germany by the time I was 18. By the time I was 19, I was going over to New York off the back of the contacts I was making through wow. the mail orders. Yeah. And it wasn't until one day down Music House, DJ Fresh come up to me and he said, look, it's cool that you're, you've made these contacts through your mail order service and whatnot and you're getting gigs off the back of it. But do you really want to be known for that? Do you, or do you want to be known as a producer DJ for your skills and that? And from that day, I knocked that side of it on the head and just pursued being a DJ and a producer rather than kind of the backdoor stuff, you know, like favours. And mm-hmm. because I can give you a promo, you'll give me a booking. Whereas I'd rather it be you're booking me because I'm a good DJ or I'm making good beats. So, um, yeah, that progressed into learning how to produce and... Uh, toured the world for the best part of 10 years, drum and bass, worked with Goldie on Metalheads um, as Outrage, because I changed my name from Rage to Outrage early 2000s, once it got a bit serious and I realised that I'm stepping on the toes potentially of MC Rage. I knew MC Rage. Right. And we had a conversation and I was like, yeah, it's about time I changed my name. I was calling myself Outrage. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. reason for the name change. And yeah, didn't really look back, just pursued the drum and bass thing, got caught up in the whole... DJ lifestyle side of things, which both was uh, good and bad, you know, getting caught up in all that kind of... Well, it starts, it's, you know, it's hand in hand a lot of the time, isn't it? You know, dance music, the vibes, the energy, it's late at night, you know, you're letting go of the formality of the world, aren't you? And that's amazing, but I imagine touring a world, you know, and... Like anything, over and over and over again, and time starts to kick in, the body gets older, the mind gets older, starts to get harder and harder to kind of maintain, I imagine. Yeah, and at the time, I mean, I was a, I was always a drinker from my, uh, from 13, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, all my 
dad's side of the family have got alcohol, drug problems. But I was always a drinker. I dabbled in other stuff, but it wasn't really for me. I was I was the drinker. Right. And I was from an early age. And um, when I realised I was getting paid to go to other countries and I could choose what I wanted to drink and it was just all there on a platter. Mm. First and foremost, I was a drinker and a partier. You know, going out, getting smashed, going to raves when I could go to raves. And when that all became, I was getting paid to do that. And it just, yeah, it just became this cycle of, it became more about where the party was rather than my job as a DJ or a performer. Mm. Um, I would be drinking on the way to the airport, on the plane, at the hotel minibar, at the club, at the after party. And that was it. And it became about the party only. Just about, Obviously, I loved, I'd go and cut dub plates and yeah. I loved that side of it too. But it became, it just became about the party. And that's dangerous. So when you mentioned there growing up, Andy, and, you know, alcohol in the family and stuff, and you, you mentioned you're in a council estate, what was it like for you growing up in that kind of environment? Were you, have you got siblings and stuff? Were you, were you on your own? Um, you know, what was that like? Was it difficult? Was it? Yeah, so I've got a younger full sister. She's two years younger than me, and I've, I had five half-brothers and three half-sisters. So Whoa. My, yeah, my dad had, um, he was married to my mum, that was his second marriage. So he had three sons and two daughters in his first marriage. And my mum had two sons in her previous marriage and then they had us together. Mm. So, but my, like I said, my dad's kind of side of the family was just all drinkers and caners. And I grew up remembering just many house parties and my dad was an alcoholic, but my mum and dad met in rehab, rehabilitation groups. So my mum, she was anorexic and nearly died from anorexia. And my dad was obviously a full-blown daily dependent alcoholic. And they met in like a, a group therapy kind of counselling situation um, and got together that way. I don't remember my dad being the daily dependent alcoholic. I remember him being the binger, which is what I turned into. Right. So his, his thing was he'd work hard. I mean, for the first few years, I remember he had his own window cleaning round and that's what he'd do, go around cleaning windows. And then he got a job as a security guard, um, which he did for many years until the end, actually, until he kind of retired and then kind of deteriorated after that. But what I remember of him was the house parties on long weekends, like bank holiday weekends or a Saturday night where it'd be you'd come downstairs and it'd just be bottles all over the place, music till the early hours of uncles and aunties and neighbours coming over and drinking. And then we'd go away on caravan holidays to like Skegness and places like that. And he'd just be hammered the whole time. Uh, so it's almost like he'd work. And then when he let loose, he just really let loose and soon realized that what I progressed into was exactly that, what I witnessed actually, because I'd remember on Christmas morning, they'd be like, go down and get me a beer at 6am. And I'd be like, I didn't think anything at the time. Be drinking the night before, and obviously that's the hair of the dog thing, and that's when you know what I progressed to, to becoming that whole waking up a bit tipsy and then continuing that because was, mm -hmm. this is a bit nice. Let me carry this on for a few days. Mm -hmm. uh, so I remember him being this this uh, this binger, not this daily dependent alcoholic, but he was very much that for many years before I remember. But yeah, we were poor. My dad was racked up with debt. I remember hiding from the electricity company and debt collectors. My dad would cut lino out of the kitchen lino and put in the electric meter to get free electric <laughs> so they'd come in and, see it and it'd just be like those are plastic falling out 
Um, mm. And we'd be dodging debt collectors and, you know, uh, my dad would disappear. He'd go up to Scotland or Wellingborough or just disappear for two, three weeks at a time when he'd booked tomorrow then, just go on a big drinking binge and stuff like that. But it was tough. You know, we were, we were poor. It wasn't abuse. I'd get whacked when I was cheeky or in trouble like most kids of that generation i was going to say what was your what was your relationship with your dad like Andy? was was he was there moments did it you know did he scoop you up and take you and teach things and show you stuff was it close or were you kind of at a distance was it scoop me up and beat me with his belt like, with right, right. <laughs> like, uh, but not like it was weird my dad was glaswegian six foot odd glaswegian with tattoos and, and a drinker very loud Every other word was a swear word and very man's man, you know, it didn't show emotions. Well, man's man of that era, which, you know, is just a load of rubbish, really. Didn't really show emotions. I have vague memories of play fighting with him when I was younger. Um, I could tell at times he was proud of me, but didn't really show it in, in, a, in a way. Didn't really take much interest in my music. Always told me to get a proper job and, you know, he was like, leave school, get a job at 15. That kind of, yeah. you know, mentality, get a proper job, mechanic, builder, you know, whatever. That was his kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he, he was there, but it weren't, it was from a distance. It was quite disconnected. Mm. He was mm. there. Mm. And what about when you say the house parties? Were the parties like musically orientated? Was there a love for music or was it just stick the music on or what? How, how did that come? music. They'd be like, like I said, you know, Carpenters, a bit of Cliff Richard, a bit of Elvis, Al Jolson. My dad used to do the best Al Jolson impression. Right. He was known for that. He loved Al Jolson. And it was very, like, there was music all night. And I'd hear it kind of from a distance and, mm -hmm. and whatever. But, um, yeah. And what about, what, what about your mum, Andy? What, what, were the, what was it? Were they kind of temptuous? Were they, like, imbalanced? Was there moments, did you, did you see them sort of loving, tender, and stuff like that? Was your mum cool with you? Did she spot how your dad was with you? And Well, she became the same, man. Over years, she became this distant, cold thing. Mm. You know, very, in our house, it became, a th you know, it was hard, man. Like, when I had kids, it was hard to hug them and say, I love you. And, and even in early relationships, it was hard for me to show my emotions. I remember making the decision that I wasn't going to be like that when I realized I was becoming that early on in life. And, you know, from what I grew up, I had to make a conscious decision to not be that. Once I traveled around the world and I'd, I was dating a girl in, in the States and I'd been around to see culture and how it was in families, mm. I was like, hey, that's weird. I, I've never experienced this, you know, celebrating birthdays and going out for meals. And none of that existed when I grew up. It was not, there was not this social aspect to, to it. And, it was just very cold and my mum became that as well and she's way better. And that was only when my dad passed that I would arrange family functions. We'd go out on Mother's Day, birthday, you know, we'd celebrate stuff and we'd go to restaurants. That was unheard of when my dad was alive. Right. It was like he would invite you around for Sunday dinner if he wanted to and it ended up in a bit of a drink. Um, yeah. But that wasn't every, that wasn't that often. It was very, friends can't come in the house. Very rarely were friends allowed in the house. Right no sleepovers until I was kind of maybe even that was quite rare one or two that I, I recall of friends sleeping over and stuff um very very strict household right Definitely. um yeah. and you say you've got kids yeah I've got a 18 year old boy and a 16 year old boy wow yeah wow you're you're long in the tooth as a dad then at this point yeah and 
I've got now I've uh, I've got two stepdaughters to be. Wow. Um, four and a half years we were engaged to be married, and um, they are ten and six. Wow! Congratulations. Doing it again, thanks. But doing it, you know, I was there, but you know, well, part time. When, when you when you mentioned though that that imprinting, you kind of refer to it. You can recognise yourself. I mean, I've got three young kids, and I've got a stepdaughter who's. 20 she's 20 now um it's i i found myself certain habits the things that are imprinted in you like you say until you see something else go somewhere else experience something else often it, you, when you're a kid we, we, on reflection you can maybe remember oh actually when i used to go to billy's house it was different it was like they were like doing that and they were all together and i can start to put that together now but i definitely recognize parts of my upbringing um my family broke up when i was young and I, I recognise certain patterns that I was repeating that I was like, whoa, I don't want to go down this, this, you know, I don't like this part, this part, you know, it kind of brings it back to the surface, but it's hard yeah. to work on that stuff because it's kind of in you, it's ingrained, isn't it? Mm. It's really I think difficult. for me, it was experiencing it and wanting some of it for my family. And, you know, that's, I was like, I want this, this is great. Socialising, family gatherings, you know, having a laugh without it just being about, the session although you know a lot of it was because back then I was drinking as well and I, and I really bonded with certainly my mum's side of the family like her sons my dad's side a little bit when he passed but they were just they'd only come over for a massive session and you know a lot of them were in and out of jail and I had two one half brother die of drug and alcohol abuse nephews that are older than me in jail <laughs> nieces that are older than me in jail. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Their kids, great nieces and nephew in jail. Right. <laughs> just, yeah. That side of the family is just quite strange. So I, I definitely didn't want to go down that road, which is why I snapped out of the whole. So whole music, thing. I guess, then would have been a really. I mean, you, you mentioned as you're the one hanging out the window, putting the aerial up. You know, your passion, your tenacity, your that that is like a beacon for you. I guess is it. You grab onto the music, and it's meaning something really important to you. A bit of a double-edged sword. I think obviously I got caught up in. I left school with no qualifications. I told I was. I was told I was a rubbish student. Turns out I had chronic anxiety. Didn't know it at the time. Was we weren't really putting labels on things back then. Mm. People. Mm. <laughs> so I just thought I'd look around at school and wonder why everyone was cracking on with their work and I didn't have a clue what to do or how to do it. And then home, you know, homework. Parents would just say, "Have you done your homework?" I would just say yes, even though I hadn't. That was about as supportive as it got. In they'd just take my word for it, you know. And parents' evenings would be like, "Well, we think maybe he's intelligent. He just talks too much and doesn't focus. Don't know how to, mm. <laughs> you know." So I realised that um, I wasn't stupid later on in life. I, I, I got diagnosed with chronic anxiety and I've had bouts of depression and stuff. Um, but music, yeah getting caught up in that whole lifestyle thing was quite dangerous but at the same time now i think music and actually anxiety have saved me to be honest they probably saved my life ironically that's interesting yeah it's interesting you say that but i guess you know that's having the i don't know the ability to kind of look at it with reflection the introspection of it to see to look at it you know front on you know so many of us as you say, we're labelled or we label ourselves even these days and sit behind that label without actually sort of looking at it square on and trying to pu pull it apart a bit and how did we get to this and what does it really mean? 
you know and there's mm. there's a silver lining sometimes in that adversity isn't there i think you know there's 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 things to learn in the darkest moments for sure yeah i mean i had to i got told i mean i was in and out i went i lived in thailand for a year i was spending a lot of time in america i was going to aa meetings all over the world and that wasn't for me because although i had an alcohol problem i was a binger mm-hmm. i could go on tour for three months be in a different club for most nights with the opportunity to have what i wanted when i wanted not touch a drop because mm-hmm. I, I didn't have to drink my, my thing was if I choose to let loose, that's it. I'm going a million percent into it and waking up with hair of the dog and carrying it on two, three days. And that kind of went back when I was younger. I remember having a session with mates in the park, being a little bit tipsy and then one or two o'clock in the afternoon saying, oh, should we get back on it? You know, mm. but it was a little bit innocent back then. Um, and then it became earlier waking up. Oh, let me just go to the shop and have a can, take the edge off, get back on it. And that progressed into something. But I became a bit of a pest out and about. So I'd go to clubs and I'd, my rider at one point was a bottle of vodka and 10 beers. I'd rarely, I'd rarely get through the, any of that. I was just trying to be the big rock star mm-hmm. until I was like, too many horror stories of the stupid stuff I'd done. And when you've got a bit of limelight on you and then you're waking up to pictures on, on forums of you hanging over a chair of an empty bottle of vodka in, in some state, and I've got kids that could see it and stuff. Mm. I be- that I switched that off, so I, I, lo- I locked it off in the public, but I became this closet binge drinker. Mm. So I could go on tour, not touch it, because I, I was getting into fights and, you know, but people knew who I was doing this stupid stuff. And it was fun for a lot of people. Oh, outrage, yeah, yeah. he's this Living up bird. to his name. Yeah, exactly, and it was exactly that. I mean, you just ask, mm. ask the Wincots, they'll soon tell you. Mm. Um, but, I, sw- I switched that off because I can't can't keep doing that because I'm going to get myself into some serious... I'd wake up in a doorway in King's Cross at 8 o'clock in the morning from the night before yeah. thinking, what, what did I do last night? And then just going into the off-licence around the corner, getting back on it and getting the train home and having another two days on it. Like, just some random stuff like that where mm. I'd wake up under a stage in Eastern Europe at this festival I'd played at. Everyone was gone and I'm under the stage sleeping with my record bag, missing my plane back home i missed missed planes home from australia because i was in after parties waking up with a pink blanket hugging a bottle of captain morgan in some random house of people you know and like just stuff like that spending a grand to get back home and i was just Mm. carry on man because i shouldn't be alive but anyway Mm. i switched that stuff off and i became this closet drinker where i'd go on tour come home and almost like a, a way to switch off i'd have a drink Three days would go by, I'd wake up all these empty cans. That progressed to five days, six days, maybe every three months. My last binge was 13 days long. Mm. And I remember very little of it. And throughout that whole period, I was going in and out of therapy, counselling, Alcoholics Anonymous, which wasn't for me because I was around people that were struggling to, to not drink every day. So I just couldn't relate to that side of it. You know, I think AA is probably great, but it, that wasn't for me. What was for me was one-to-one therapy. Um, but I became this closet drinker and that got very dangerous. And the last thing I remember about my last session was, um, I went to this drop-in center called can it's like, um, it's a, a drop-in center run by addicts and alcoholics and stuff. Great place. They're, you know, warm. They understand it because they've been there. Mm-hmm. And it's one, this one person said to me, this lady, she said, you're going to die. She looked at me, it was my, after my last binge, I was grey, I was 
I wanted to tear my stomach out through anxiety. And she said, you're going to die. And it's the last thing, I rem and it's the last time I haven't touched a drop since. But prior to that, my mum was begging me. I remember even once my son said, oh, you know, what are you doing? And How long ago would that have been, Andy? Seven years. Seven years. Wow, congratulations. Not, I haven't touched a drop in seven years. Seven years uh, is the cycle as well. Seven-year cycle. We're at that, that point of the evolutionary yeah. pattern starts to turn again, doesn't it? So you feel good, you feel strong. I love it. I don't, whenever I think of alcohol, which is rare, my stomach turns. It really? takes me back to that moment where I was feeling probably my lowest. Because I've had, I've had it all, man. Like I've been on all the medication. I've been depressed. You know the whole kind of. There's been a lot of darkness and me wanting to kind of just end it and all that kind of stuff in the past due to being so low from self-inflicted stuff and depression and all the rest of it. Um, I have no no need. I, I drank to get smashed. Hmm. There was no, I didn't like the taste of alcohol. And do you think, do you think that that's, I mean, it's something that I'm really interested in, 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 again, coming back to childhood and the kind of the precursors and the, the, so much is happening in those developmental stages when, when we're, we're, we're supposed to be in, being nurtured and grown and celebrated and safe. And we're meant to be discovering the world and being binded and bonded. You know, it feels like so much, of the trauma that we, we seem to suffer, lots of it does stem from something missing in those years there. Um, I know myself, my family broke up when I was young and we had a difficult time and I've been trying to piece things together and I've been through, you know, similar things, I guess, with music and, and drugs and abuse and depression. And I don't know, it's something that fascinates me to this day. I just wonder what, what, what were we missing? What happens? How does it, how does, what's the trigger? Well, I didn't feel necessarily hard done by it. I hated being poor when a lot of my friends were buying the Air Max and all that, you know, and I couldn't. Mm. I, I had to save my dinner money to buy records and all that kind of stuff. That, that's what hurt me the most. That's what I remember the most, being poor. The other stuff, like, I guess at the time, I didn't think there was a real issue with it. Mm. My dad had a good time, he had a drink. There was this... And until later on in life, I didn't realise that we didn't have a very social, warm family, not loving, you know, mm. I didn't really know any different. Mm. So at the time, I didn't feel like, oh, this is, this is crap. Like, mm. Now I look back, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be that. That's not going to be my family. Mm. No, good but, on you for that, yeah. The lack of the love, albeit it was, like I said, it wasn't horrible, wasn't abusive. You know, my dad shouted a lot. He was just leery anyway. He, he never, he rarely spoke. It was just everything he shouted. And then actually going through therapy, it, that, it turns out that that contributed towards my anxiety because they, they tapped into kind of the triggers and stuff from an early age and being threatened. You wait till your father comes home and me being really scared of my yeah. dad. That caused the, the butterflies, which then developed into anxiety and stuff. Um, but yeah, at the time, I just didn't really think... There That's was the thing, problem. isn't it? That's the scary thing, because when you're a child, you don't know any different. You know what's happening in between these four walls, and this is the world. And that's, as I'm a parent now, so aware of it, having been on this journey and trying to re read books, and I've spoken to um, hypnotherapists and different people, um, and everything I read, everything I, I kind of connect the dots in my on my path is, is, as I look back to childhood, I think, yeah, it's not that when we think of a, what what triggers trauma, what triggers anxiety and things, you, you, I think we, for so many of us, we have this image of maybe, you know, being in a 
grotty flat with no windows and being beaten around the place all the time. But actually, what is unhealthy is is not necessarily you know physical abuse or even it's maybe sometimes it's just that it's just not connected it's just not connected you're just not together do you know what i mean and just that is is something you don't you have got you wouldn't have a clue of that when you're a kid you just you harden to it you you're a product of your environment and you're lucky like you mentioned earlier if you do have the introspection and the ability to look at the pattern and see it and then go hang on a minute i recognize i'm going in this direction i need to reverse back out of here reset I want my kids to go down this road. That's a really blessed moment because so many of us, we don't ever realise that we're in a pattern and we're in the momentum of the pattern just repeats and repeats and repeats. You know, so when you when you talk about the therapy you had then, so what what did you the twelve the twelve step kind of alcoholics thing didn't work for you. So what what did you what did you go towards? Well, I had to make a lot of noise. I, the amount of times I took myself down to A&E through, like, after a binge, the anxiety was just unbearable. Like, my, I just wanted to tear my stomach out. It was just, I can't. That's why it was a vicious circle of continuing to drink because the drink would temporarily suppress the anxiety and take the edge off. And it's coming out of that and going cold turkey and it's just tenfold and you've got the horrors as well on top of it. And it was just like, ah. So I'd go down to A&E so you got to give me something to sleep or to chill me out or whatever. I had a few kind of um, assessments and stuff and they obviously diagnosed the chronic anxiety and gave me some 18 sessions. They extended it. It was initially like five or six one-to-one um, psychotherapy sessions, which they extended to 18 because I really got into it, really found it was useful. Um, but actually the guy said to me then, he goes, I can't treat you unless you stop drinking. And so for that whole period, I did have to kind of really put a lid in it to try and get the best out of that. But the one-to-one therapy I found to be really good. I did see, um, CBT, the cognitive, cognitive behavior therapy stuff that didn't really work for me. Um, Mm. tried it both group and one-to-one that didn't work for me. Um, medic, I was on medication for quite a bit. Um, tried various things so an antidepressant to suppress the anxiety but I had bouts of depression as well some epilepsy drug that was used a bit stronger to kind of also kind of help keep the lid on the anxiety Um, but I just found myself on certain medication felt like I was in slow motion and slurring my words Mm. and stuff like that Mm. so and I was teaching and doing a master's degree at the time wow Uh, so that which was crazy, yeah. Um, considering I didn't have a GCSE to my name, but um, <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah. So just I tried various forms of, of different kind of things and drugs, and the drugs did work to a certain point. Mm-hmm. They helped take the edge off, and they helped me focus on getting the help and knocking the booze on the head, and you know, feeling like oh, actually, I can feel okay at the moment. I'm being assisted by these drugs, but actually, what if I can? you know, work that out for myself. And the one-to-one therapy really was something that I swear by. And, and through that as well, I discovered meditation and, and stuff. That like was going to be my next point is, uh, is how, when you're sort of, you know, reaching out, I guess, in, in your behavior, you know, how many in, in the various sectors that you went to medical or therapy and stuff, how many were interested to know what your kind of day to day was like, you know, food, exercise fresh air you know the basics that you probably know all about now 
were those questions being asked? Were people saying to you, you know, what are you eating? What are you drinking? How much sugar have you got in your diet? You know, when are you, when are you sleeping? How, how long are you sleeping? Were those kind oh, of questions really? coming at you? Yeah. Um, I guess there were various visits to the GP that would probably ask questions more in line with kind of health and, you know, mm. uh, that sort of stuff, but not really as a, as a trigger or as a cure. Cause you know, as well as I do that, people are looking a lot of diet now for like anxiety and stuff mm. like cheese mm. or whatever, you know, can be big triggers for some people. And, and this is only kind of in recent years, it seems to be on the surface that people are saying, yeah, that's, that's why I ask. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, but no, historically, no, not, not, not for that particular reason. They're just like, are you keeping active and stuff just as a normal kind of, yeah, GP? Sort of general broad kind of thing? Yeah. But not, not in relation to kind of mental health or, or anything like that, which um, yeah, no is the mm. answer. Mm. So you found then, that those sessions, those one-on-one sessions, they worked out, they worked good, they worked well for you. You, you kind of connected with that. Yeah, I, I just understood what anxiety was, which was amazing because yeah. I've got it. I still suffer every day, mm-hmm. but I know what it is now and I know that I'm not the only person in the world that's got it and I have good days and I have bad days and there are techniques. Sometimes I can bring myself to meditate, sometimes I can't. And actually, I truly believe that without my anxiety, I wouldn't have achieved half the things that I have achieved in my life because I'm always, I'm always on it. Pushing, pushing. Yeah, well, that was going to be sort of my next angle. So with all that experience and with that all happening, sort of, um, you know, we'll put the timeline together. Um, but as you're making your music, so when you go on the drugs and things to kind of fix this up and try and, and bring yourself into in better health how does that affect your creativity is it do you notice things do you notice your productivity you know how does all that affect you you know what you actually love to do which is your music well when i was doing the drugs and the therapy um the uh i was doing the masters as i said so there was it was more kind of just getting through that year is which was quite bad because i'd gone from writing about the big big friendly giant at 14 15 to doing level seven education and a big gap of about 15 years in between. Yeah. So how did that come about? Let's just pause there a minute then. So how did that come about? What made you say, shit, I want to do this. I want to go and get myself a degree. Nearly kill myself. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Um, well, I, I had, um, I was living in America. Well, spent not living. I've seen a girl in America. So three months here, three months there, you know, the whole visa thing and stuff. So, and the outrage thing was starting to dwindle, starting getting booked for old school sets. So, I was like, hang on, I'm at old school, but Tango and Ratty, you know, <laughs> I'm like getting booked for old school sets, what's going on? Um, you know, I'm not ready for that. So I just scratched my head and I was like, wow, outside of music, what, what have I got? I haven't got any education. I've got a bit of experience in sales and marketing because that's what I dipped in and out of my whole career, like double glazing, kitchens, home improvements, that sort of stuff. And a mate of mine just done the masters and he said, you could do this. I was like, what are you talking about? I haven't even got a GCSE to my name. Um, so he said, you could do it. I was like, nah, they'll let you on because you're industry experience. And if you've got the money or you get a loan, of course, it's education. They want your money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, first and foremost, they want revenue, yeah, uh, which course. I found out when I became a university teacher. But um, I applied, showed them my portfolio of work. Obviously, I've been in the industry for 20 years and I got on the master's. So 
I, it was a bit of a shock really. I didn't think I'd get on there. And um, I did that. I did a full-time master's degree in one year. Wow. At the same time as being on, in the same week, I got, except on the master's, I got an album deal as nominee, which is with my brand new alias with Rinse FM's temper label. And I got offered my first teaching job all in the same week. Fucking hell. So now you've got a job to keep your mental health this side of the line because now you're through the roof. Yeah, it, that <laughs> but it was like, um, I don't say no to anything. So I took on all of that. <clears> and, um, I took all the help I could get from the university. I had a, I had an academic mentor, um, which was like a student therapist. Like we did like 12 weeks. That was really cool. I took on the academic help and support because I didn't have a clue about research or academic writing or any of that. But I did it and I was 2% away from getting a scholarship to a PhD. Oh, you know, more you know, power by, to you, brother. Yeah, man. And like, I just, that for that year, I obviously, I didn't really entertain anything outside of the masters and my once a week teaching. And I knew that I wanted to fuse the, the masters with the album project. So I kind of, the nominee album kind of became a part of the master's journey by experimenting with different genres. And that kind of formed my final master's project. So they, they kind of aligned at some point. So I wasn't really having to separate the two things. I really made the masters about building nominee as a brand. And that's what I did. So I used the masters to, to support yeah. me as an artist, which worked out. I did all the research. I did all the business plan. I did the branding. I did an album. The album changed quite a bit from the album I submitted for my masters, but it was all there through that one year of application doing my master's degree. Um, but it was tough. It was a tough year. So that was when I was doing the, most of my therapy and, and medication because I was still drinking during that master's. And I nearly flopped it because I went on a binge right towards the end and missed, nearly missed my deadline. And, you know, it hit me hard because I'd had all that pressure of those new things on me mm. that I fucking lost it. I lost it. And then um, I salvaged it. I, I confessed to my professor, told him the whole shebang, mental health, you know, I'm going through issues, got an extension on my final project and um, yeah, still managed to be 2% away from getting a distinction at MA level, which mm. I'd have been happy with a pass, man, you know, yeah, but, of course. So, but then I kind of came off the, off the drugs and obviously I was free to make music and my teaching job developed into a full-time position to the point where I ended up teaching the whole of a degree I taught the most of a, of a foundation degree for five years. But so at the time when I was doing the drugs and getting the support, it wasn't getting in the way of the creativity. It, it was just supporting the masters, which then became the nominee project. So it helped. It helped me focus, especially the academic, right? You know, 10,000 words here, 3,000 words there. Wow. Without mm. those drugs, mm. I'd sit there for three hours and barely write a sentence because my mind was just going crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you find teaching then? What was that like? What was the first day of teaching like? Amazing. So teaching is one of the rare times anxiety doesn't touch me. I get into this tunnel vision and it's all about the students. I think of myself, obviously I want to make sure I perform and give them what I can because it's a performance when you're teaching. Mm -hmm. But obviously initially it was, ner was nerve-wracking. You know, I'd, I'd be teaching stuff that I wasn't overly confident in. And a lot of it, you have to kind of just develop, you know, they always, I say, when you teach, you learn way more by teaching, you know, and, and I swear by that even now, or just reinforcing, embedding stuff. So initially it was, I'm very, quite shy. I have been on my whole life, very shy, ironically. Um, never really got social anxiety, 
I always get butterflies and excitements before a performance and before teaching. But yeah, man, when I was in that zone and just concentrating on making sure that those students learn as much as I could give them, I didn't think about myself. I wasn't worrying about the future or the past or anxiety. And I'm in the zone and then it doesn't touch me. So I bet it's a buzz as well to see, you know, young people sort of infused and connected and kind of taking on that energy as well and using it. I bet that's a buzz. I love it. I, I, you know, I've, maybe initially I was a bit precious over my little secrets and production stuff, but yeah. now I just... <laughs> I love... Like the way I see it, if we're all chefs with the same ingredients, we're not going to cook the same meal. I've seen you and, say that, yeah, on a couple of the videos I've watched, yeah. I wouldn't be doing education and base if I was precious, you know, because the first year of that was just all me, mm -hmm. um, my content. Now we've built that out to having tutors and stuff. But, yeah, man, it's just so nice to see the kids smiling and learning. It's great. It's so rewarding. It's a big buzz. Yeah. Big buzz. So you mentioned you went over and lived in Thailand for a little while. I lived in Thailand. I've been travelling to Thailand for... Uh, love it long time since like probably early 90s my old man went over there in 92 or 3 or something like that so how did you end up there where were you what was going on fill us in I, I love to hear your Thailand chapter Bangkok right I was there I was I was invited over to ended up having a business partner we were gonna start a music school there so he had been he inherited this family house that was a bit of a shell kind of not ruins but three-story house that we had all these plans drawn up front of it was soundproof glass you could see all three floors music studios dj lessons you know and he was like come over let's design some courses there's a big call for it here because he was um he had a record shop in siam square um the first kind of record shop out there and drum and bass he was a big drum and bass guy promoter and stuff like that mm -hmm. so he had a lot of contacts and he was doing private dj lessons and he had links with the expats he was teaching at an expat school music music technology so he had this business idea but just needed someone to with both industry experience um and teaching experience to come over and help build this school um but the economy crashed 2008, 2009. Mm. I spent a year going back and forward. We designed the curriculum, the courses. We trialed in temporary premises, like the, the attic space of the record shop. We had like groups of 10 students to trial the, the content and stuff. Development happened on the house. I was going to have my own little living quarters there. You mm. know, it was like really cool project. Loves Thailand, just the people, the fact that they can smile no matter what. Yeah. They're just, there. you know, maybe no arms and legs laying on the floor, but still smiling. You know, mm. it's just, I can't comprehend that stuff, you know? And it's just like, we're crying about the rain and stuff like that. It's just uh, <laughs> really opened my eyes. And that was another part of the journey, actually. Like Thailand really enlightened me to the transition from outrage into nominee started then, you know, the outrageous, leery, angry person spending time in Thailand changed me. Um, but yeah, the economy crashed. Um, there was a, few hairy moments out in thailand obviously it's thailand um but when they when the protesters took over the airport was it early 2009 i was stuck in thailand and i'd heard on the grapevine luckily so i'd just given up my apartment and i was supposed to leave had my bags all of a sudden the airports were taken over and i was like shit got no money missus went split up my missus she went back to chicago i was supposed to be going back to the uk got stuck but i heard on the grapevine that the government were paying for hotels you just got to find a hotel and they'll cover it right so i found 
five-star hotel. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Went on an alcohol binge for a week. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and I was in this big plush. It was, it was just an uh, all-inclusive hotel, big seafood buffets. I just vague memories of girls coming to the hotel room and me going to eating and drinking and ordering condoms up to the room and like yeah, the, full, you know, the full experience mess it was like hangover it was like hangover it was like that sort of vibe mm-hmm. um and yeah that ended my time in thailand because the 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 guys uh, my partner's investor which was his dad pulled out and said no i'm not can't put any more money into this uh, project because we don't know what's going to go on with the economy he had a chain of pharmacies across thailand and asia and it was just all a bit yeah. No, but if yeah. so, he pulled out. He's since developed it into. He kind of does a DJ school, and he's actually more selling BB guns and BB gun equipment because he got into that. So yeah. it's not a project we designed, but it got finished without my involvement, unfortunately. But it was um, it switched me on to wanting to educate on a serious capacity, and um, it really opened my eyes to I don't need to be angry. Because I was angry. I did anger management. I was an angry person. I was mm-hmm. fighting and very angry. When I drank, my problem was anger. Anger would surface every time I drank. Mm-hmm. Um, but going to Thailand, I was like, you know what? Don't need to be angry. Look at these. Look at these people smiling, and they've got nothing, and they're smiling. <laughs> when you mentioned earlier about you know finding meditation, and I know from you know reading about you and stuff that you'd spent time in Thailand. And I, I feel that too <clears throat> in my house. I mean, my second son was born there. My little boy was eight months old when we lived there for a year. So he spent his first, <clears throat> a year of his first two years there. Um, big impact on us. You know, that whole, that whole Buddhist philosophy of, you know, you're suffering from the word go. You know, that is what it is. This thing's difficult. Being a human is beautiful because it's, because it hurts in a, in a sense, you know, it's all fleeting. It all dissipates. It all leaves. Everything passes. And I, I definitely took that from I mean, a combination of their, like you say, the smiling faces, this, this, the steady pace. Um, there's just a feeling, there's an energy. And I, I, de- I definitely took that away from there. So I, I wonder, you know, it, it, did you feel like that? Did you get that from it? Did you get that kind of like hundred percent man? Like, just i was you know obviously the anxiety causes just the want and need for everything to happen now mm. <laughs> you know yeah, that's the part of the anxiety bringing it all here and then you jump in a million miles forward again it's just you like leapfrogging the, mm. the the current moment constantly hopping over the now you know to the next situation whatever that might be so it definitely um and, and i did i was introduced to at the time i was like sampling because i I tapped into kind of Eastern instrumentation back then and I was sampling little Buddhist quotes and stuff. And that, that led me on to Alan Watts, who... Oh, powerful Uncle Alan. He's in the studio Alan with Watts, us now on the back of this bookshelf. Yeah, he... Um, <laughs> Alan Watts, man, honestly, I, I kind of discovered him weirdly kind of through John Cage, Stockhausen, the avant-garde music, which then led into kind of chants and Buddhism and stuff like that. But I was already kind of back in 2008, 2009, curious of Eastern instrumentation and ethnic instruments and scales and stuff and sampling little Buddhist quotes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was introduced, I actually, (laughs) 
I was going to go off into the jungle and become a monk at one point. I was that oh, kind of things were that dark. I considered just going for yeah. six months. Yeah, my mate said, "You sure?" Because it was like you know, I looked into it, and it's like you know, you're up at four in the morning eating a bowl of rice, and you know, it's, it's not it's not a game. No, it's but a real I was deal. Really yeah. Close considering you work all day and you know it's, it's there and and I was really close to considering that journey so but I looked into it more and, and then yeah I was introduced to the the Zen philosophy and then Alan Watts so I, you know I'm not Buddhist but that without kind of Buddhism and being aware of it and Alan Watts wow and the way he broke it down because I find Buddhism to be riddles yeah. <laughs> a lot of yeah. it's riddles yeah and, you know no one tells you what it actually means but actually if you consider it it unravels itself but Alan Watts helped kickstart that for me, you know, at the right time because I didn't want to have to unravel it all. <laughs> you know, I didn't go to like official kind of meetings and, and <clears throat> enter it. Capacity, yeah. so it was shortcut into it. For, for for people listening, watching, you know, um, Alan Watts was was a famous academic, a British academic who ended up. He was over in uh, California, wasn't he? And he mm. was famous for bringing, I guess, the Eastern philosophy of Buddhism. To, to the West, I, I guess, in an academic sense, you know, in the, was it in the 60s, Aidan? I think it was late 60s, wasn't he? Into the 70s and stuff. Um, but I, I found, I found his stuff. I had a friend who, um, who was just a, a reader. He'd read everything. I was never a reader. And I, I, someone sent me a link to him. I think it was that guy. And he said, oh, you know, check this out. And it was an Alan Watts clip on YouTube, probably about the same time, you know, 2009, something like that. And it was clip lovely, you know, nice montage, like a five-minute clip just with beautiful landscapes and vistas and this guy's croaky voice. And he was just saying some stuff that was dead simple in the right order that was so profound that was like, what the fuck? Mm. That was, you know, and it's the right thing at the right time often, isn't it? You know, and but it's interesting because Alan Watts, he struggled with alcoholism, didn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he struggled. He, he had a difficult time with it. But um, no, he's he's um, he, I, I, we used to listen to him at night as well. When my wife was pregnant, we'd sort of learn some stuff about in utero and babies can hear everything. And at night with one of them, we would listen to Alan Watts like last thing at night, just as we were going off. And I always told myself, I think it was it was number two, that one. He's got Alan Watts. He's got Alan Watts energy going straight into his into his frontal cortex that was my little imagination of that i used to love listening to him going to sleep i get a lot of questions about i mean i'm open on social media about my mental health and stuff and sometimes i open a can of worms because you know i've had people hitting me up about all sorts of dark stuff and i'm like well i'm not qualified mm. here but you know what i can say is maybe go and check out some alan watts or ask for some official help mm. you know but yeah some really dark dark stuff has approached me from being open but I'll always, you know, Alan Watts, man, honestly, I think without what I learned through him, things would be quite different right now. Mm. Definitely. Well, that is some testament. That is some testament. And I've seen, you know, you, you, you've, you've got, I've seen you wearing t-shirts where you talk about mental health and that's, so you've taken that as something. Did that come as you started to find your clarity with your struggle? Did you start to think, you know what, I need to talk about this. We need to share this more. Yeah. I remember the first, like pre the 60 second tips that I've done for like, and they're not every day now, they were every day for two and a half years, clocked up 2 million on Facebook views of these daily tips. Wow. And they would be just me in the car, walking Bronx at the gym, just splurting out a 60 second music production tip that 
probably surfaced in a lecture that day that half the students didn't care about. But actually, I thought, let me just share it with the rest of the world that might care. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, but pre the 60 second tips, um, I just did a video once on my social media about anxiety and my journey and, and like the suffering and stuff. And I was a bit reluctant. I remember deleting the first take of it because I was teaching at the time. And I thought, oh, some of my students follow my music page and I've got colleagues. If they see it, I'm going to lose my job. Mm -hmm. I was like, ah, screw it. I'm going to publish that. And I remember going in and like colleagues, well done for that. You know, and, and then students and people I knew, that's amazing. And it had like 25,000 views and, and a lot of people like, and I was like, wow, I can be open about this and it's okay. Yeah. And actually I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, and it, it was great. It feels like the climate is starting to come around to this now, isn't it? It's almost like we're all started saying, fuck, yeah, shit. And this is where I come back to Buddhism. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm like you, I'm not versed in Buddhism. I've been around it for a long time. You know, my, my, my stepmom's obviously Buddhist, my sister, you know, I've been around it for a long time and I, I've boiled it down to the fact that you have to accept that the, baseline is it's a suff we're suffering and again i guess in, a, in an analogy i said to you earlier about you know when we think about abuses i didn't have an abusive childhood i had a normal childhood and you you get rid of that initial vision of like being beat around the room in a you know cobwebs and whatever it whatever it is you know some cold dark environment it's not necessarily that and it's the yeah. same when you're talking about the suffering it's not that we're you know suffering in a way that we might our mind's eye might put us you know, whatever that framework is, but just being a human, the experience, trying to unravel everything, meaning, love, connection. Am I doing it right? Are you doing it right? Are we doing, you know, like that is just the baseline kind of anxiety, isn't it? And once you kind yeah. of accept that you've got the fear behind your eyes, I've got it behind my eyes, the celebrities have probably got it worse than anybody because of that spotlight, you know, like, accepting that for me at least feels like we're all bumbling through that's what the buddhist i kind of condense that down to is like you, you're suffering you've got to accept that this thing is just so overwhelming and try and just find some kind of truth and communication seems to be the thing that we're getting better at now as you mentioned like with your dad once upon a time a man's man i think our idea of a man's man's changing now isn't it you know mm. to communicate to to like you just pointed out there by sharing that when you're thinking oh you know am I going to lose my job are people going to you know actually you find people pop up and go fucking hell thank god because I feel like that yeah 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 it's it was always a bit weird teaching because unfortunately primarily I was teaching male and I wish there was more kind of females getting involved in music tech education where I taught there wasn't many females which is a bit of a shame you'd probably get one out of a group of 10 you know a couple out of bigger groups and stuff so unfortunately it was predominantly male and I would always new academic year new group I would always be like you know we've got if you're struggling financially we've got this support system and this and if you're you know men, if mental health's a thing and immediately when I said that eyes would go I'd look up every single person every single male would have their head down and not look me in the eyes when I was talking about mental health Mm. Every year upon year for like five nearly six years and have you seen that gradually because when i talked to tommy um tommy tronic you know obviously he, he's in education as well and he sees the kids and we've talked about it often um he said in the last sort of 10 years the anxiety levels of the kids coming through were just going through the roof obviously a social media and the whole digital kind of you know tidal wave just takes over he said he just sees it more and more yeah, I mean, we had one year, I think, 
90%. I mean, I think you've got to be careful because, you know, let's face it, kids will be kids. And once they clock on to a get out clause, some of them, unfortunately, mm -hmm. lash onto something and like declare something that might not be just to get out of some coursework. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. we have to listen. We can't take any of that for, you know, yeah. you know, we can't. But one year we had 90% of the students declare depression or anxiety. Now, I don't know what true percentage that was, but even still, even if it was 50, that's too high. Mm. <laughs> too high. And even I bet, um, I bet a lot of those kids who were maybe declaring it as a bit of a get out were suffering it in some way or another anyway, without even yeah. realizing it, you know? I'm sure they probably were, even, you know, they're not capable or don't feel like they're capable or haven't necessarily got the support systems in place. Mm. Because let's face it, if they're trying to get out of something, there's something going on, right? Mm. So they probably have, but they were probably, you know, thinking they were using it. But yeah, you're right. I think if, if you dug a bit deeper, they probably were truly suffering. Mm. Um, yeah. But I didn't, see, I didn't see it getting better. Like what, what I do know now is since becoming a visiting kind of lecturer or going to, as a, not as their teacher, when I go in and do these masterclasses or workshops, the heads stay up. Not like when I was their teacher, because I was the person grading them. And they might think, if I show signs of weakness here, is it going to mean I'm not a capable student and, you know, I'm going to be judged or not necessarily get the grades or whatever. But when I'm face to face with the group now, whether it's an event we put on or if I go to a, an education provider, generally you get a different rapport. They're kind mm. of a bit more open and even mm. if they're teachers in the room, but it was different to when I was the teacher. I felt it was very different. Well, that's interesting then, because that kind of sheds light on the structure, the infrastructure of our systems, doesn't it? Because if if a teacher is the person who's spending all that time, and I'm thinking probably more even in, in schools, senior schools maybe, but if you've got a tutor or a teacher who's seeing these kids day in, day out for hours and hours at a time and does get a feeling and can get a handle on something, but there's that blockade in the way because of the structure, because of the hierarchy or whatever that is, that's a difficult one, isn't it, to... Is because I could go and say, yeah, you know, I was a bit of a lad, and they'd be like, yeah, me too, and it'd like you're on the level with them. Mm. As the teacher, you got to be a bit more careful. Yeah, so it's in them, isn't it? Kind of in a, in a way. Yeah, even though you know, I think I was definitely known for getting on a level, but still having those kind of um, boundaries in place. You know, more more so than maybe some of the other teachers would have been able to come down to a certain level or or get on the same level. Mm. Um, there was still that that thing there, you know, and mm. yeah, you know, I don't know how, I don't know if that's ever something you can resolve but it is getting better i think you know more people are suffering but like you said i truly believe everybody suffers we just deal with it in different ways you know there's no two ways about it everybody mm. suffers mm. Mm. that that helped me as well to realize that because the more i spoke in therapy oh so you're getting anxious about, it wasn't said in these words oh so you're getting anxious about this which any human would get anxious about mm -hmm. or i'd come to that realization but the way they'd frame it was almost them telling me yeah but we all would. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, you're right. Mm. Who wouldn't? Mm. So a lot of it was like, I'm, I'm beating myself up because I'm anxious about something that probably most people would be anxious about. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? So as you, as you come through the, the Masters and you've, you've kind of, you've born Nominee as, a, as a, a new alias, a new moniker, a new kind of, I guess even out of the back of the Thailand thing, it's 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 the new stage of your life. It's a new you, literally inside out, isn't it? Which is going to be expressed yeah. through nominee. Yeah. So when you get through, you mentioned the album changes a lot from from you know the, the I guess the dissertation or the end of the, the course. 
what starts to happen there? Because when I listen to a lot of that stuff, as you mentioned, there's a lot of sort of, it's much slower, a lot of chanty stuff, a lot of repetitive, you know, it's really kind of grooving on the, and it's a lot of simple, kind of really yeah. kind of raw and um, there's a visceral simplicity that I'm like, wow, yeah. So is that all, I guess that's a reflection of what's happening in you, is it? Yeah, it was weird. I, I found the love of ethnic instrumentation and Eastern scales and the philosophy and Zen and, yeah, the final album, uh, you know, I was sampling bits of Japanese poetry and just I really embraced that whole meditative thing because obviously I discovered meditation during my master's and throughout the journey and practiced that a bit. And that's another thing that really helps me, actually. But just by listening to mantras and, you know, some of the meditation flute music and all that other stuff, I just really found a love. I just love those scales and the way that, the music is and, and the, the instrumentation, the organicness and, mm. you know, I just, that's what I did. I wanted to incorporate that, but I wanted, I wanted it to be able to, <laughs> I wanted it to be something you could meditate to or rave to. And I come from drum and bass. So when I entered the 140 world, it was the weirdest thing ever because people will brand nominate as first and foremost dubstep. My first experience of a dubstep rave was when I got booked to play in Hollywood um at a, at a dubstep night as nominee i'd never i didn't own a dubstep record never been to a dubstep rave knew nothing about the devs dubstep scene i was just making music at 140 and it got embraced by the dubstep world and i got signed to temper and stuff i didn't even like dubstep i actually laughed at it mm. oh that's underproduced rubbish but actually no different to what we were doing in back in the early rave days you yeah. know yeah. it was a cultural thing and i was just turned into this drum and bass snob yeah. laughing at these amateur kids well actually i was that kid one day as well mm. you know um so i didn't even know what i was really doing but and i went i played at my first gig and i was playing my 140 stuff and people were like half time dancing and i was like is this all right it's like yeah this is normal man so it was like really weird to go from playing in russia yeah four hour sets to everyone going mental to big amens and rah, to mm. this thing oh, this is cool you know and um just did my thing and, and some of the thing was i wanted people to be able to dance to it but also tap into kind of meditation and I, honestly i had i had videos i've had videos of people headstand meditating to my music wow <laughs> yeah. thanking me for how my music has helped them on their journey and whatever and in in the next breath i can go to outlook festival in croatia play the same track that someone was headstand meditating to, to 2,000 people, nominate chant, and having them sing it back to me and rave out and stomp out to it. And it's like, it's weird. Well, you did it then. You pulled it off. You pulled it off, brother. <laughs> and I think, you know, stomping heavy subs and hand drums and tribalism mm -hmm. behind it mm -hmm. in the 140 world that's very slow and heavy anyway, mm -hmm. It just worked, mm -hmm. you know, and that became the nominee sound for a few years. And I ventured a bit off into the grime world. I've since started to incorporate more breakbeats and stuff, much like we did with the JTIP project back in kind of 2007. Yeah, or that was interesting. I wanted to speak to you about that. Yeah. So that kind of, that kind of all happened at once, didn't it? With, I guess, as you say, dubstep and dubstep kind of. Yeah, it was too... So I was, I was in Thailand at the peak of when we were doing our JTIC thing. I was actually in Australia on tour and I, ha I phoned up Danny. I said, Danny, I've got this idea. Let's bring back that stuff at a slower tempo, but make it current. And I was like on the phone to Randall, told him the idea. And he goes, bring it on. I, you know, I'll wave the flag for it and, and whatever else. And we did. I was in Australia in a hotel making 
you know, early ideas. And then me and Danny linked up and done Falling Bombs, which was the first official JTEC track. But it was the peak of dubstep. No one wanted to entertain music at 140, 150 because dubstep was so big. Yeah. And those that did latch onto it, because, you know, we did all right. We mm-hmm. took it around the world. Me and Randall went to Asia. I did tours in America off the back of it. Mm-hmm. We did Ireland. We did, you know, quite a few gigs in London, Herbal. Uh, but it was only ever lapped up by the old school heads, not the kids. The right. kids were like, oh, my dad listens to this. Got you it. know, I like dubstep. But it was cool. But it was almost like it was tapping into the old school market, which was cool. Mm-hmm. But for us to progress and to kind of make it something current at that time, nobody wanted to entertain a breakbeat. Now everyone's doing it in-house and everything. They've got breakbeats. Yeah. You know, like everything's becoming, like, certainly in the in the more mainstream structure of everything, it's just... You're getting everything in a truck, aren't we now? It's yeah. Like everything's homogenized into, you know, into. Which is great. Minutes. And I'm now starting to, you know, the whole nominee thing is not just that now. So I put out on my label, I've put out techno, trip hop, drum and bass, jungle, dubstep. You know, I put everything out on the nominee sound label and we're like 15 vinyl releases deep now, two albums, a trip hop mm-hmm. album, I'm a band in. Um, some of them are in Berlin, some of them are in Croatia, you know, so I've really kind of just now made a melting pot of everything I love and I can, with the Nominate Project, I can kind of do what I want, when I want, and it's great. Mm. I can go and get booked for a five-hour set at the Volks in Brighton, an all-night set in Brighton. I can start off with dubstep, go into grime, go into jungle, drum and bass, rave, techno, and that's what I'm known for now, and that's great. But yeah, the whole meditative tribal thing was a big part of the first four or five years of the nominee journey. And it still is. I've still got, you know, I'm still doing stuff like that, but I just don't want to be restricted anymore. Well, I, again, I, you know, for me, it was like listening to your story and kind of painting a picture in my mind of the timeline and your evolution. It kind of just, it's that chapter of you kind of shedding skin almost as well, you know, and, yeah. and moving into a, into this this stage now. So education and base so how does that come around i guess is that when nominees happening you've done the masters is that already happening or is that something that you your brain child and you think right let's let's somehow work this in and make this happen so i was was teaching i ended up teaching for nearly six years um in fe and he so college level and then university level um which i loved i love like i said i love teaching it's very rewarding you know anxiety doesn't touch me but i just I got a bit disheartened with the system, you know. Mm. I, I thought I was getting brought in as a specialist to teach, which you'd think that is what it kind of is. But no, you're ticking all these boxes for Ofsted and you're being given all other... And don't get me wrong, you know, Ofsted and all that stuff's in place to support and, and try and get the best out of the teaching and learning experience. But it just... When I'm sitting in these Monday morning meetings and it feels like my double glazing sales meetings mm. and it's all on seat and if they don't get if they get past the first six weeks we can't they can't fail and we can't get rid of them we have to make them pass bollocks that's mm. not you know you've got two students that get a pass right at the end to say one of them has been there every lesson they're just not as good as some people they're slower to learn okay but they're there they're committed they want to learn and they always show up I'm sure that there's people there that are struggling and whatever else, but some of them just do take the piss. They're swerving real life. Cool. They're swerving. I did it. I went to college to do an electrical installation course because it sounded like a good idea. I was down the pub every lunchtime drinking, didn't care about the course. I just wasn't ready for real life in a job. Yeah. Cool. Okay. That's fine. But some people do take the piss out. And I was that person who took the piss out. But that's why I'm saying that I was that knob. It yeah. was like, you know, I'm swerving real life. 
but actually I still got the pass out the first year and I didn't really do anything. And, and you know, then I, I when I realised this as a teacher, I just got disheartened, man. It's all about sale, and it's a business. I know it's a business, which you is know, but when crazy though, isn't it? Really, how have we turned our education into a business? It's just, it just I just felt like there were there were there were kids that did not deserve to get that qualification. I'm sorry, they just didn't deserve it. They were didn't deserve it. And then you've got those that do, and they're coming out with the same certificate. And I was just like, wow, man. What would like, you be able to do, Andy? How would you, what would, did you ever have theories of how you could get around that? How would you, how would it work? Would you be just sending people on their way? You know, you're, you're, there's your coat. You're... I, think, I think more support, this, this is a problem. More support was needed because as we said earlier, there's clearly something going on. Okay, they're swerving real life. Why? They've, they've shown an interest in music. Why not make the most of it? But it's just resources, you know, getting rid of teaching assistants and stuff and, 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 you know, funding cuts and the experience isn't as good. They, you know, a whole music tech department might only get 500 quid to spend for the whole year. I mean, you barely get any drumsticks for that much. Mm. You know, it's just like music is the bottom of the pile for, for, for education. No one cares. Mm. And it's like we're all struggling for resources and new equipment and software and computers that don't work and the students are, are, are the they're there and getting a bad experience and it's just like so i don't know i think it's tough because you need extra support and resources and you need to enhance you know it needs to start with the teachers and the resources get that right and allow them to do their their job correctly you know everyone's being slammed everyone's been overworked and you know the teaching comes last it seems bureaucracy this, yeah just pay and this other stuff it's like the teacher doesn't get a chance to shine in what they're good at, why they've been brought in as an industry specialist in their field. And all of a sudden they're this admin machine that barely has time to even focus on the teaching because they're either doing all this other rubbish, you know? So I think what needs to happen is more support for the teachers, which is why, you know, I'll go on to the education based thing, but it's part of what we're doing because the teachers can't do, you've got 40 kids in a classroom, differentiation, mental health, learning difficulties, of course you're going to get people stray. You just can't, you can't give them the best experience. Mm. You know, some take the piss, some have got mental health, some just don't feel it's for them and need extra support. Some can't read, some can't write, you know, and there's one teacher to 40 kids now because they're taking away teaching assistants and stuff. So I don't know what the answer is. I, I know that like a lot of teachers are unhappy, especially in FE. They're getting overworked. Um, you're getting teachers put into classrooms to teach a, a subject or, or a module they're not overly experienced in because they've got rid of all the visiting lecturers because they've had to keep the contractors on and you know they're spread thin and stuff like that. Oh, it is. It, it's a. It's it's just awful, isn't it? You know, and and you know, on the outside, you always have an idea. You know, like I say, stepdaughter who's twenty. You know, you keeping the eye on the kids going in. You know, you keep an eye on the system and what's happening and like everything else, we're just we make everything so complex and everything's counterculture now for who's gonna sue who for whose fault and who's insured and who's not and who's gonna you know, who's liable and you can't do that and you can't do this and it's kinda of, we've like sterilized it down into, like you say, a paper trail, haven't we? Do you think then, Andy, with where we're at at the minute, what we're seeing with COVID, what what we're seeing with a lot of industry where people are working from home, and I guess this is where you're probably heading with education based to a degree, being online. Do you think in the future, big old buildings with big old textbooks and, like you say, unhappy career teachers 
you know, in dusty rooms. Is are we gonna are we gonna see the back of that? Do you think in our lifetime? Do you think we are gonna be all learning independently online through various workshops and it being a, a much more kind of tangible, movable thing? Definitely more so. Mm -hmm. um, just because I think COVID's probably brought forward what was maybe going to happen in five years time, but mm -hmm. brought the urgency forward um, of blended learning and what's possible online. Cause there's a lot that's possible. Um, you know, we speak to a lot of institutes and we get some resistance, even though we're offering free resources, we get resistance because people are in fear of their jobs. So oh, what's this thing coming along that could potentially replace me. It's not about that. Our whole thing is to support first and foremost, the teachers, and which are then going to, you know, feel the confidence and have the resources in place to then do the job they've been brought in to do. You know, instead of having to scour YouTube for stuff they're not confident in and actually videos that are getting millions of hits are misinforming people because they're theore theoretically actually wrong, but getting loads of hits and the teacher gravitates towards that one because it's got the most hits yes. and they're yeah. then feeding back the wrong theory. It's not subjective. It's theory that they're giving wrong, you know. Um but by helping to provide these teaching and learning resources that can then trickle down and, and the, the, the learners can also use as enrichment or extra facilities to be able to go home and, and maybe watch something they didn't quite grasp in the classroom. Like for me, I was my, my anxiety, I learn in a different way. If I can watch a video over and over, I can't read either. I read a page of a, I have to read a page of a book about 30 times before it soaks in. My mind is two lines down. My mind's gone. Wow. Literally like it's gone i cannot read i just cannot read but i can watch a video and it's locked or i can watch somebody do something like show me something it's locked so for these learners to be able to go home and maybe didn't quite get something in the classroom or half the week they're at home half the week they can be lazy but wake up turn their computer on and watch a lesson because you know it's it's definitely I think it should be a support thing. I, I think there'll always be a place for the physical classroom and it will never go because you can't beat the the rapport, the fact that you can just ask a real-time question, you can mm. probe and you can stretch and challenge the learner. You know, obviously you can do that remotely via Zoom or whatever as well, but I think you can't, I don't think you'll ever replace face-to-face, -face, but I certainly think it's going to, it's definitely going to be a lot more present Um especially due to something like this, because now people are not going to want, I mean, look, you think about these universities right now, their revenue is gone. Mm. You know, I saw something on the news the other day, these students are saying, oh, I'm taking a year out. Screw that. <laughs> mm. I'm not paying all this money to not know if I can go in to a facility and use the studios that I'm paying for or whatever. And it's all good that people are saying it'll be okay, but it's, we don't know it's going to be okay mm. right now. We don't know. You know, so people are going to want to avoid this happening again. So to put these things in place, it makes sense, man, because this has caused a lot of problems. You know, people haven't, schools, teachers haven't got their online stuff in place and it's caused many problems, you know, mm -hmm. where they could have still, you know, we had it with our stepdaughter's uh, teachers. They just didn't have the stuff in place, didn't have the resources and, you know, they just don't know what to do with it. You know, yeah, sending us video clips they found online and other other resources and yeah. So, how long has education and base been kind of up and running in a, in the online kind of accessible format? So it's our third year, and and it was set up because um, I lost faith in in teaching. I you know, and I was I, I was teaching with Stevie V, you know, uh, Dirty Cash, mm -hmm. um, 
the one the the adventures of stevie v he's, he's known for that classic dirty cash track and he was there for nine years and he said to me you come in with all this enthusiasm he goes i remember the day he says but I hate to be the, uh, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's going to dwindle. I've been here nine years. And I used to wonder why he was very manana, almost like he's not really putting his, his all into it. Now I know he would never have lasted nine years if he did. Wow. I was putting 110%. I was a grade one teacher for the whole of my time. But I felt I started to tire and, and the system started to get me down. And I was like, I need to enter on a high because I'm seeing my colleagues around me that are like zombies. So I'm getting out now and I'm going to put this same energy into my own thing and that's what I did with education and base I took a risk I just moved in my partner we had a mortgage to pay I moved 100 miles away from my hometown no money coming in and it was a risk but I haven't looked back you know it's it was in place to replace the energy I was putting into teaching but something that I believed could reach out on a wider scale and really support where I saw the gaps both as a educator and a student mm. you know if you can give the students the better experience Maybe those people that weren't so motivated, that were swerving real life, might actually find some interest and lock back in or lock into it, you know? Mm, totally. And you've managed to assemble all of that experience and all that, that learning and both personal and, you know, professional. And you've covered, you're using every element of it, aren't you? Every facet of it is there to be, to be passed on, to be absorbed and... Again, I don't want to link it to COVID in any way, but as you mentioned, the timeline, we're moving this way anyway. We are moving more and more into interactive, you know, and I, I agree totally. I think the classroom will always be there, whether or not it's the classroom that's in the big building that's owned by the government that's, you know, funded by, or whether that room is a room that is independent and who knows, but it feels like you're 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 definitely sailing up, up the up the river in the right direction with you know the wind in your sails i definitely i think we're going to enter a world of facilitators mm. where you don't necessarily be need to be the dog's bollocks teacher you can facilitate by means of some resources that can help support that which is great it means that you know more people can help and facilitate you know you might be able to get more people in the mix to, to infuse variety and maybe less experience or the people that have already got on board by giving them these resources and these options, you know, they can become facilitators and not necessarily the specialist. Mm. And all, the, more people all the while maintaining your, your, what I get from you, Andy, and this is the same with anybody who loves what they do. When you love what you do, and as you, again, you mentioned, you, you know, the, the guy who says, look, nine years I've been here, you to keep that energy, to keep the enthusiasm, to keep the interest, to keep the that that level, you've that's so important, isn't it? You know, to try and maintain that and not be locked in or blocked off or like you say, sat in those meetings on a Monday morning kind of just losing that because that is the the very reason you've gone into doing what you're doing and it's why the kids are gonna come on the course. And trying to keep that whatever the environment is you're gonna build now, to try and keep that a much more um, vibrant, consistent thing, I think, is going to be much easier, you know, when you're in control like you are. You know, it feels like that to me. It definitely feels like, you know, that, yeah, that motivation, that energy is 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 going to be able to breathe, you know. Yeah, I think music technology, like, like I say, the learner that, I, I think what music technology does is it gives people like me who didn't think they were academic, I wasn't musical, 
didn't feel like I had anything creative about me. It, and if you look at the history of people who have become successful, often similar stories, you know, not necessarily academic, some can't play an instrument, just press the right buttons at the right time and make the right sound, and then kind of evolve into this creative being. I think, you know, those learners that struggle and are swerving life, maybe you can show them that there is something. You know, you might have chose music because you like the idea of music, but actually if I show you how you can do something with it in an effective way, you can turn that into something and actually make that, because, you know, you might not be ready for getting a job or, and you might have a real love for music. It doesn't mean you have to skip class and, and just totally swerve it because you're not quite sure. Your parents have told you it can be something. And I just don't think it's being presented for the most part in the right way. And I just believe that the more industry collaborations there are with, with education and the more online enrichment and stuff can give more people an opportunity that don't know what they're doing and mm. just want to mm. swerve and avoid, you mm. know? Yeah. Which all in the end just builds up and builds up, doesn't it? And doesn't, yeah, doesn't land anywhere decent. So, What's the future then for you as an artist? You know, how much time are you managing to put into your music and your productions and what, what you got going on and what's the future look like for Nominee? Well, for the last year and a half, I didn't do much. I, I, I've put music out of other people's and we've started an education-based label for subscribers and some of the tutors and stuff and I'm putting more energy into that. But actually this year I made a decision to do an outrage album so it's been 20 years 20 years of outrage 25 years in total since i started djing but obviously five years i was rage so um i've done i pledged in january i was gonna at least unleash 20 new outrage tracks on the world this year oh, um wow. actually i've nearly finished 20 tracks already all oh, right uh, so are they going to be all new ones or are they bits and ideas that you've had from the past that you've knitted uh, brand up new, brand new this year oh. so i've uh, been pulling some 6am starts around the nine to five and, you know, commutes into London and on the train, putting out the laptop and, and using any given moment to sketch out ideas. And um, yeah, there's going to be an outrage album to just mark that journey. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm chipping away um, at a nominee album as well, like about five or six tracks, which is a collaboration with someone quite exciting as well. So I'm, um, this year is probably going to be my most productive year ever. Oh, wow. Excellent. Turning, yeah. turning COVID on its head. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I've, I've never been busier with regards to, the, I mean, obviously COVID, we have been a lot busier just mm. trying to kind of support people and, you know, develop the relationships we have. But I've just made an effort. I don't believe you can find time. I think you have to make time for things. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if it means you go to bed a bit later or wake up a bit late earlier and but consider balance, I think you can achieve whatever you want to achieve and that's what i've done in the last six months i agree with that totally yeah you got to make it happen mm. you get what you give exactly well you've been a star a nice one for giving us this time andy that's been really interesting it's Sweet. been really Thanks, interesting sir. and uh, where, where where do we send people to find you where should we send people uh instagram nominate underscore sound uh facebook nominate sound and then just education and base on all the regular platforms as well excellent Nice one. Well, you stay. You take care. Thanks again, yep. brother. And, nice uh, one. We'll keep keep our tabs on on your progression. And yeah, we'll brilliant. Look, look forward to the outrage album. Nice one. Yeah, nice one. Take care. Thank you for listening to Chew the Chat podcast. Thank you for listening.
Shoot the cat podcast. I want to do my own work. Go on then. Very angry. And there you go. That was nominee, Andrew. Andrew Ferguson. I think you'll agree, you know. Um, really, you know, he's got a really balanced and um, kind of a, almost a humble way of kind of connecting the dots when he looks back at his past and, you know, maybe the abuse and the alcoholism and recognising the pattern in his life and everything. He was... Um, yeah, really quite grown up about that and, and not resentful in any way I didn't feel like and I took a lot from that. He just sort of picked up his pieces, accepted things for what they were and and put his fuel into achieving things and making things happen and working hard and and uh, yeah, that's that was inspiring and I'm really, really interested with the educational approach and, and we'd like to see where that goes. I follow Education and Base and you you guys can too. Everything's linked in. Um, and nominate himself, nominate underscore sound. Um, Blind Man is a tune, eh? Uh, you know, and uh, that nominee record, Inside Nominee, you know, it's um, really interesting. And now, having listened to that that podcast, I'm sure you guys will have a take on that music as well. You know, it's much more interesting, I find, when you sort of get an insight as to an artist or a performer or a writer's kind of, I don't know... Um, feelings at the time you know direct from them you can kind of yeah you can see how they come to a conclusion in word in form in melody you know it's interesting and he really sheds his skin so i really really enjoyed that and thank you to andy for giving us that time um it was awesome okie koki sponsors thank you very much go deep flotation therapy lovely people code word chew 10 inches of epsom salt filled water switch off from the chaos the madness the distance the masks the gloves the fucking should we shouldn't we the can we can't we go and lay down in the dark and drift away into the deepest parts of yourself and let your body just be moted by the fucking non-gravity and just yeah oh, oh, give yourself a once over it's amazing 10 percent code word chew and that is amazing thank you to linkandcryolab.co.uk same thing different blast three minutes I think we went down I think Matt took me down to 140 I think the other day on Saturday um, and it was amazing I just felt amazing and you can too and the CBD products in there the cookies look just bang tasty the cookies look immense and um, I actually had one of the drinks a mint and lemon um, 330ml cold can of something that was I think like was it 36 I'm not sure the dosages 36 milligrams I'm not sure I'll have to check that but it was lovely I had a really nice again just disconnect from the awkwardness it was lovely um, so yeah check them out linkandcryolab.co.uk and you will get 10% off using the code word chew Okay, coke. That's that. I'll look forward to get getting this uh, We Are CBD goodie box with all their goodies in it and gummies and all sorts of different things. I'm looking forward to that. So we'll talk more about that when it lands. Um, coming next for you guys is a podcast with Ray Elliott. Ray um, is a ocean man. He's a diver. 
um, dive instructor. He's a free diver. He's a surfer and he is a traveler, um, spear fisherman. Really, really interesting lad. Uh, and he, he brings a really interesting story. Um, in the theme with nominate actually you know that difficult childhood the impact of that and the driving forces that it creates so that's coming for you next and it was a fantastic fun one um we were it was a saturday night we ray had brought down a load of independent beers straight from the kegs of the of the the guys that make them in their basements in northumberland and so they were quality like nectar honey and we got through it and it was great fun it's a long one um but I think you're going to really enjoy it and there's really touching moments and it's a powerful podcast and I think, um, yeah, it, it gave me some therapy so I'm hoping that it might do that for some of you guys as well. So, all good. Listen, I'm going. It's Sunday. I'm supposed to be watching the cruise with the kids and I totally forgot I hadn't done this. So, it's been great as ever. I love coming down here in the digital earlobe and talking to you guys and being part of... Um, this crazy journey together. So thank you everybody for the continued support. Um, those of you who, who don't follow us on the socials or whatever, it'd be wicked. Come and drop on the Instagram's the only one we really use. We just send stuff to Facebook from there. We've got a Twitter, but we don't really use it because it's just too much. But if you follow us on Instagram, Chew the Chat Podcast, we're often sharing. Uh, photos and contextual things from the podcast and stuff and it's just nice to get comments and chat to you guys and get to know you a bit so don't be shy come and say hello um youtube subscribe tutor chat podcast these podcasts that we've said many times before they they go out the friday the video format goes out on a friday night prior to the monday when you download these um you don't get all my spiel and all the rest of it so maybe that's even better um but you do get the the hd video and they're good fun producer aiden does a great job um and so give us a subscribe on there hit the notification bell join that little family um there's i think we do something like 12 videos a month on there so it's well worth it's well worth um dropping in and, and checking that stuff out uh, and I think that's it, yeah. If you're on iTunes or any of the platforms where we can rate and review, it goes a long way. I try not to bang on too much about this, but it really, really does help. Little old podcasts like this, if anything, just to get it to more people like you, you know, people who are going to discover something, uncover something that they might be able to connect with, something that resonates. Um, I know that's how it works for me, so would really appreciate that. If you do listen on, on there, a rate and review would be wicked. Or just tell a friend. We're just grateful. We're just super grateful. You know, it's a it's a lovely little little world and a little family we're building here, and it's mesmerising and bonkers to think talking into this microphone, watching these lights flashing on this roadcaster desk, is impacting my life in such a way, and and we're becoming friends from some weird new world of distance but closeness. It's weird, man. So thank you. Appreciate it. Listen, guys, it's been wonderful. Take care of one another. Peace. Peace.